everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We've got episode number 73 with James Fell here today. Uh, we're going to talk about his book, The Holy Shit Moment, that should be uh, should be out now by the time you're listening to this stuff. Uh, James is a contentious character we have a lot of fun with. He gets into a conversation about uh, taking action on emotion versus necessarily always doing a deep mental analysis of decisions. Uh, he tends to be active politically on social media, but he also attacks quackery and pseudoscience. So he tells us some of the crazier bullshit he's dealt with. And we attack, quote, every dumb fuck food documentary on Netflix. Uh, not to mention we get into some Costco etiquette stuff. So stick around for that. And you may want to stay tuned next week. We've got James's friend, Yvette Dontremont, better known as a science babe. And we get into a lot more uh, attacks on the pseudoscientific bullshit from people like Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, the food babe. Thanks for listening. Have a great episode. Shut up and sit down. Hi everyone, today we've got my friend James Fell on the podcast. We've been talking about putting him on here for a while. He was in hibernation writing his new book that uh, by the time we release this should be out and available. We'll talk about that. To give you an idea of how brave James is, after a really exhausting weekend in Kansas City this past year, I'd met him the year prior, finds me in a layover in Minnesota. I'm wandering around. I am sleep deprived. I'm exhausted. And all of a sudden Still I get drunk. bear hugged from behind in an office, in a, in a hallway in an airport. <laughs> My fighter flight's like, who the fuck is doing this? And I turn around and it's James. So, and there's probably about 80 pounds of difference between us. So I forgot about that. <laughs> well, you're probably just as sleep deprived as I was, but, uh, so James is a regular contributor to both the LA Times and Chicago Tribune. He's an author. Obviously, we'll talk about his book. Big time fitness myth debunker, uh, enemy of pseudoscientific bullshit. Uh, there's a whole lot more. So uh, welcome on the podcast, James. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I've, I've been looking forward to this one, especially. We'll uh, make sure we have some really fun and not terribly embarrassing graphic for you. So we turned Nick Tuminello into uh, Ace Ventura recently. Oh, outstanding. <laughs> yeah, we'll, f we'll find a favorite movie later. <laughs> so I, Something to make you look really shitty. Did I uh, miss anything <laughs> really important uh, that you're really involved in in your intro? Is there anything else? That's uh, like... No, just, uh, I mean, the, the one thing that I'm, I'm starting to add to the repertoire beyond writing is getting a bunch more into the public speaking stuff. Because uh, with a transition to being not just solely focused on health and fitness and really looking more at the the general life motivation because that was something that was always interesting to me is you know less about squat technique and how many reps of bench press and more how do we get your ass off the couch and get you eating properly yeah. uh that i've expanded out into okay how do i take my knowledge of cognitive behavioral therapy and and behavior change uh and expand that out beyond health and fitness and uh and being that there's a lot of money that tends to get thrown at big motivation at good motivational speakers, I'm moving into that area too. <laughs> well, and that kind of goes to your book, right? So usually the books we talk about at the end, but what's where I want to start? So of course it's called the holy shit moment, and of course I'm kind of on record as as making light of any time you get a title of a book that has swearing in it. But it's really quite appropriate. So you, you break from the traditional notion of slow and steady progression to change. 
and there's detailed stories there. I, I saw a story about our friend Chuck Gross in there, which is yep. really cool. Yep. Uh, and the science behind powerful life-changing moments, epiphanies. So let's get into that. Could you explain kind of what happens there and why this book was necessary? Well, it's the book, the idea for the book came to me in a bit of a holy shit moment is the, uh, you know, when, when you're, when you're writing a book and you want to get a big U S book deal and you want to get something that, that grabs people's attention, it needs to be novel. It needs to be new, something that either hasn't been done or you're approaching it in a new way. And it also has to be meaningful. It has to resonate with people with something that they want. And I spent months trying to figure out what is the going to be the idea for my next book? And it came to me on a bike ride that uh, because I'd experienced a powerful one of these that I talk about in the book and how my how the idea came to me was I'm out for a bike ride. It's a, you know, a, a, a beautiful day and I, I'm in a nice, distracted um, mentally positive state, which is when these, these moments come to us, when you're, when you're not actively thinking about solving a problem, that's when the problem gets solved. It arrives almost seemingly miraculously out of the unconscious. And, uh, and so I'm on this bike ride, sunny day, rushes blasting on the iPod. And I see this dude running towards me wearing uh, a Boston marathon shirt. And I thought I did that. You know, I felt warm little buzz about that accomplishment. And then I remembered, man, I used to like really suck at running. I was always in the back of the pack in junior high school. And uh, and then it just sort of occurred to me in a moment that what changed, like I'm such a different person now than the person I was when I was younger. And and I recalled that this transformative experience that I had in the food court of my alma mater at the University of Calgary. And uh, and I thought, holy shit there's my book. And that's because I didn't think anyone had ever written a popular book about the science. Like if I was going to write a, a motivational book, it was going to have to be very science-based. I wanted to really drill deep into everything that we know about this. And there's been a moderate amount of academic analysis of it, but your traditional cognitive behavioral therapy really does analyze. It chooses the tortoise, not the hare. It's baby steps, yeah. slow and steady. Uh, and this is something that's far more challenging to analyze scientifically, but it has been done to a moderate degree and no one had ever written like people had written, um, fluffy books about it where they, it was just telling stories about people that had life changing moments, but no one had ever drilled down into any of the science, let alone taken a, how do we have these like a, a how to approach. And I thought, Oh yeah, this is, this is happening. This is the book that I'm going to write. We're starting to realize now, and we had a seminar recently here at Edmonton where Sohi Lee, Dr. Spencer Dodalski, uh, Eric Helms all talked and uh, Martin McDonald and all of them actually hit on this point in one way or another that the research is now pointing to the fact that big drastic change early is more effective and enduring when it comes to weight loss than the slow and steady stuff. Now, that's that's exactly the research that the book that that, that I include. And it looks at that uh, one of the things I looked at was smoking. So people who quit smoking with a sudden renunciation uh, and not just smoking, but also alcohol being another one rather than a planned quitting attempt where it's uh, but it's a sudden transformative experience where they just say, I'm done. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a more complete quitting attempt and and they uh they have far higher adherence rates 
I've actually probably, I could think of about three different of these kind of oh shit moments and very powerful ones. I won't get into too much detail, but one was at 24 when I had a terrible flu, lost 10 pounds. <clears throat> this flu was so nasty that I always joke with people about how long The Return of the King is, the third Lord of the Rings movie, because I sat in the theater, went in on a date, was fine. Halfway through, I'm not feeling so hot. Something's wrong. It keeps going, keeps going. With about an hour left, I feel like I'm literally going to die and need to go to the hospital. I somehow survive it <laughs> in a pool of sweat. It was horrible. So I was really sick, lost 10 pounds over the next couple of weeks. Um, and then after that, I'm like, fuck, I'm 170 pounds. <laughs> and I'm 6'2", you know, my athletic frame. And I really was feeling kind of shitty. And in life in general, I was done university. I really didn't have like a purpose. I wasn't doing anything meaningful with a job. So I just hit the gym. And then, uh, fuck, what is it? Seven months later, I was... 210 pounds, steroid-free, just worked hard and been consistent. And so that was one but of them. Was it the flu or the, the like, Frodo throwing the ring in the fucking... <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, there's, I think there's two kinds of people. Like, they're the people who love the underdog, like the Frodo, Rudy types. I fucking hate these kind of characters. I like your Wolverines. I like your Aragorns. Those sorts. Uh, the, the Hobbits are fucking insufferable. So it wasn't the to movie. watch. It was way and, too And long. to be clear... Frodo did not have the courage to throw the That's ring. True. At That's true. <laughs> so that pissed you off enough to be like, "Fuck." Probably. And then, like, <laughs> I, I, I actually wrote a recent article that got sh actually shared pretty well, which was cool um, about like playing three years worth of World of Warcraft and having been logged in for one of those three years. <laughs> so it's eight hours a day, eight hours a day of sleeping. So literally half of my this is like over a decade ago. Half of my awake time was logged into this I could game. have a holy shit moment. And, and quitting, right quitting that and then really redevoting myself again to the gym because I'd gotten away from it a little bit for that time frame. And a hardcore wow addiction and dedicated gym time. Those two things are completely incongruent in your life. So, yeah, so I've, I've experienced that stuff too. And it, it does require kind of that like big moment and massive shift. Like you can't creep out of stuff like that. Do you think it's because like with cognitive behavioral therapy, they're trying to like get you to be aware very slowly but something big enough it almost snaps that without like a therapist like is that kind of why these holy shit moments work because they're so big that you can't ignore it well yeah there's i mean there's a couple of different uh ways that these things can work sometimes they literally appear out of nowhere or by accident yeah. or random chance we were talking about chuck gross yeah his happened because of a positive pregnancy test yeah um, his wife came out of the bathroom saying, I'm pregnant. This was utterly unexpected. And what happened was he went through an identity shift where, uh, and the, that, that's one of the things that I go into a lot of detail in the book. It's based on, uh, Rokic's model of personality with the whole, you know, Shrek thing. Onions are like, uh, or ogres are like onions and layers and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So the model of personality is on the outside layer we have actions and behaviors then you go down a level and you've got attitudes and then beliefs and identity values and then at the core is the self and the reason why we focus on slow and steady when it comes to behavior change is because it's painful yeah. uh, another example there's a new book out. i haven't read it yet but i've heard about it is atomic habits by Ooh. james clear such which a good is, book and we've got James coming on the podcast in the near future as well. So cool. no, it's uh, I, it's on my to read list. And uh, but 
it, it's the reason why we focus on these little micro steps is because you don't want to create too much discomfort between the outer layers and the inner layers because the inner ones are the more powerful ones. And so if you change too much in terms of behavior all at once without going through an identity shift first, it's a recipe for failure in most cases. Now, what this book is about, it's not about behavior change. It's about a dramatic change, shift in the self, the who you really are at a core being that automatically brings behaviors in line in a seamless, effortless syncing up. So what happened with Chuck, as an example, he went through a dramatic identity shift in a moment from husband to not not just husband, but father. He knew he was going to be a dad. And and he describes it as a combination of a lightning strike and a, and a baseball bat up the head simultaneously <laughs> happening where he actually said, the old Chuck is dead. I killed him. The, his former person, the former the person sword. he was, <laughs> no longer exists. And this was a guy who had uh, had obesity his entire life. He tried and failed to lose weight many times, but then in all of a sudden, the way he described it was, I didn't have to struggle to be motivated. It came built in. He knew it was going to work, and there was never a struggle from that day forward because he'd become a different person, a person who exercised regularly and a person who ate well and a person who was determined to lose weight and keep it off. And he's kept, what, over 200 pounds off for more than 10 years. The odds of people doing that are extraordinarily remote. Yeah. It worked for him because of that dramatic identity shift. I actually just wrote something about this and, and I think it's because I, I haven't gotten too deep into your book yet. And I'm wondering how much it will <clears throat> sort of this will emerge but I wrote something about getting people to see the identity, the future idealized self. And I think everybody kind of has this image of how they would act in the future. This person who is a lot more fit. I often use the example of police, uh, people who are trying to become police officers or firefighters. And how if you're going to actually get to that point, there's no point in saying, well, once I arrive at that point, I'll start to act like that or I'll have the lifestyle of that person. Yeah, That shit has to start now. And if you mm -hmm. can grab onto how visualize, feel what that future self would be like and start to act like that person, you can make that a reality much more easily. And it sounds like the same sort of thing you're saying. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I do in the book is that I, I don't dismiss cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy, yeah. but rather consider this approach that my book contains as an adjunct to it because there's, so there's Chuck's, uh, you know, I, Chuck's story makes it seem like, oh, well, if you want to have a life-changing moment, just go knock someone up. <laughs> <You know? It's, laughs> that's the not the advice that I'm giving. But the, the that's the that's the example of it literally coming out of nowhere because of uh, you know there was an there was a story I was told of a woman who had a life-changing moment while she was cleaning the toilet, and uh, they they can just pop in out of nowhere. Uh, conversely, you know, one of the things that that I'm clear about in the book is, hey you might be ready to have one. So what can we do to dramatically increase the likelihood? And because this is, because we're talking about a major transformative experience, there are no guarantees with this. I'm very clear about that. Yeah. But science shows there's steps that we can take to increase the likelihood and to, if and when it happens, to utilize it to the best of your ability. And one of those things 
Um, uh, do you know Paul Ingraham who runs the site painscience.com? Yeah. I don't, but yeah. Uh, so great guy. Uh, his site painscience.com is awesome. And I talked to him about, he's had a, a couple of, uh, of major transformative experiences. And one he described as, as the traditional slow and steady method of painfully one step at a time, dragging himself over a tipping point. And the other one was just completely effortless the he described it as poof i'm different now and so what i that i used his poof terminology to say that that you may need to meet the poof part way through the traditional baby steps approach so if you are if you're at the base of the mountain in terms of motivation that and the peak of the mountain of, you know, 100% motivated all the time to do whatever it is that you need to do in order to achieve these goals. Like with, with Chuck being 100% motivated towards his weight loss, that, uh, you don't just hang out at the base of the mountain all the time, waiting for that poof to arrive. You start climbing a step at a time. And because of that experience of learning about the process of what it takes to become this highly motivated person, you may get some, you know, sort of Star Trek transporter device that just picks you up and either takes you right to the top or a hell of a lot further along the way. And that was, you know, I had my transformative experience in university that had nothing to do with fitness. It was more about stop flunking out of school, getting out of debt. And uh, those, those were the two big things. And, and not, then after and I finished my first girlfriend. degree, <laughs> then it was like, okay, I'm fat. <laughs> so, so my, my, the beginnings of my physical transformation were not very inspired for the first couple of months. It was a slog, but I'd learned to be a hard worker. So I just, I toughed it out. And then after two months, I had another one of those transformative experiences about exercise where I said, I will exercise until I fucking die. And that was 25 years ago, and I'm still going hard. So I think it worked. Yeah, it's not exercise to to death. So. <laughs> no, just meaning <laughs> until I'm dead. <laughs> I'm well, going to keep doing this until I'm I'm ready to call it quits. Well, and one of the questions we had, and it kind of maybe we kind of talked about it a little bit, but maybe put a little bit more specificity on this. But why does taking action, I guess, with emotion matter instead of always doing like that deep mental analysis of decisions which is similar to cognitive behavioral therapy but like why does that emotion matter because that's the driver that's why we do anything so a lot of us have a tendency to analyze shit to death uh there's so it starts off there's the analogy from uh plato talking about a you know plato always wrote about socrates and conversations that socrates allegedly had and it's um uh, a story about the charioteer where you've got the rider and you've got the horses and the rider is the analytical mind that uh, the rational it's or it's sorry the the driver the uh is the 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 rational analytical mind that provides no power whatsoever it just provides some direction yeah. and then you've got the two horses they are the emotional powerful drivers that makes the chariot go and uh, and if they are of a mind to go in a certain direction, that's where you're going to go, regardless of what the driver says. And uh, and so it's the analogy for for humans is that we need to think about how we 
feel about change more than what we just what we think about it. But how you achieve that point is there's there needs to be a lot of analysis that takes place. Like if you're going to trigger one of these these epiphanies, if you're going to do your best to make it happen, then you engage in a technique that involves analysis followed by distraction. There's a great book that I reference a number of times called The Eureka Factor by uh, psychologists John Cunios and Mark Beeman. And I interviewed Mark Beeman extensively for the book. And there's a quote in that book about uh, insights. So an insight is like an epiphany. Insights are like cats. They don't always come when called, but they can be coaxed. So how you coax them is you you need to actually spend some time in your thinking about what is the problem? What do I want to do with my life? What is what are the issues I'm facing, whether it's to change your body, your relationships, your career, your mood state, battling addiction, whatever it is. You need to spend some time thinking about this in a analytical and even anxious state. So because anxiety creates tunnel vision of focus where you're really thinking intently about something and you're working the problem in your head but that's not when the insight arrives that's gathering the information that allows that 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 you uh, give a chance to percolate there's a great line um in that eureka factor book which says you allow your thoughts to meander and collide that's absolutely critical letting these thoughts meander and collide in your brain because it's it's the gestalt concept of um the uh the whole is greater than the sum of the parts so when these bits of information gel in your head in a profound way that's when you have the answer and that happens when you're in a distracted state so after you've done this analysis getting outside is great by yourself no technological distractions in terms of not listening to a podcast. Sorry, guys. Uh, not, listen, not listening to an audio book, even though, you know, my book comes out as an audio book. <laughs> uh, music is fine, uh, especially for me. Like I'm when I'm out for a run or a bike ride, I'm listening to the same classic rock songs I've heard a thousand times. So that's not distracting. But being in a just allowing your thoughts to flow in a relaxed way, you can be meditating. You can be praying but that we need to get comfortable with the idea of just being in our own heads without constantly looking at your phone, listening for email pings, watching TV, listening to a podcast or a, or an audio book where we have to, where our brain is being forced to be engaged in some way. We have to let the unconscious do its thing and deliver this answer to us. And when it happens, it's a deeply emotional experience where we're like, Fuck yes. Like we know immediately that this is the right answer. And it comes with a massive rush of dopamine, which is referred to as the neuromodulator of exploration. The dopamine rush says this is valuable. You should chase this. It's it. We, we think this is going to be a good thing for you. Often there's a rush of opioids as well in the brain, which makes it feel very pleasurable. It's a reinforcing, you know, BF Skinner operant conditioning kind of thing. And the great thing about it, so the big thing here is adherence. So, you know, we talked earlier about how did Chuck lose all that weight and keep it off? What kept him going year after year? And it's the little IV drip of dopamine into the brain. So we have this powerful experience, this powerful transformative life-changing event that feels so good and so right. Dopamine recognizes progress. 
every tiny little step that you take after that experience that moves you towards that path, that vision or quest is a little drip of dopamine that says, yes, you're doing it. Keep going, keep going, going out and just, you know, buying a gym membership, buying new shoes. Uh, that first time you go to the gym, buying a freaking banana and eating it, all of these things add up over time that keep you on the path. I was going to have one question just because we're talking about dopamine. Do you think, because you talked about getting outside of our own heads, the fact that our environment has phones and pings and emails, do you think that that's blocking a lot of people from making these changes because the dopamine drip is just constant? Like that novel stimulus is just always there. I I, I do. I don't know. I, that's one of the things that I, I didn't analyze the dopamine reaction of, ooh, 10 people liked my latest yeah. Facebook post. But there is research in there that shows that um, it does interfere with it actually shows that there's um, there's a negative impact on various parts of your gray matter. I can't recall. I think it might have something to do with the hypothalamus if it's uh, if I remember correctly, that it actually causes certain areas of your brain to shrink when you're constantly on your phone and on your screen. And but if you take a break from it. And I mean, I get money from driving people to my website via Facebook. So I'm not saying delete Facebook. I mean, <laughs> go, go, go to bodyforwife.com um, and like my Facebook page slash bodyforwife. <laughs> but, but you need to take breaks from it and, and allow yourself to do that thing where, you know, you're, you're getting in your own head and, and just thinking your own thoughts and not constantly relying upon those technological distractions. And it's shown that when people do that, when they spend time away from any type of distraction uh, and just and especially being outside, being outside has um, what is called soft fascination, which means that the environment seduces your attention rather than demands it. A text message ping demands it the sun the trees the grass the mountains seduces it and that is much more uh a much more positive environment for sudden enlightenment as well as it's good for your brain and it's good for creativity that's critical because this is more than anything else a an endeavor in creativity because when people decide to i don't know paint a masterpiece or come up with some hot new product that's going to sell or a new book or a movie idea or writing a song it's a creative endeavor and these things often come to us in a flash you hear stories of musicians that say that oh i wrote this song in 15 minutes and it became a mega hit it's because it came to them in a sudden flash of creative insight. The answers to the problems of your life can be a massive flash of creative insight where you found the answer. It's, it's no less creative than writing a song or, or painting a masterpiece. Which has similar parallels to what you're talking about. They're just oh shit moments, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Or holy shit. Sorry, what are we doing? You have a question for him. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take a little bit of a turn here because we, we want. That's okay. We've talked about the book a lot. We can do that. <laughs> well, now, now I want to read the book. Now I'm like fuck because this is like right down my alley. What, it's good what I've seen so far, and you know by the time this podcast comes out, it should be out there. So I mean, ever, anyone who's been listening to this at all, like if, if James, obviously there'll be some people who find us for the first time because they've found it probably shared on your social media. But anyone who's been listening to this knows how like passionate I am about books and. 
it's it's really good and it's something that I easily recommend. Would you say it was good <laughs> even like if it was shit, would you tell him on the podcast live? I would probably tell him off the air, but I've already told him off the air that's really good. That's true. And people know my feelings on, uh, what is it, the fucking dumb fuck book, um, Mark Manson's uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And like lots of people like it, and I think it's terrible. But well, that's I, think a, it's, yeah. I think it's the twilight fair, fair of enough. fucking self-help books. He might man. have given you a free pass because you're on the podcast, but he hates books with like swears in them like, for whatever reason. Can I address that, actually? Well, just <laughs> This is my one point, though, before is that he said your book's good and it had a swear in it so that must mean it's like really good (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny how the um that was the one thing that wasn't really strategized so one thing i want to i want to be honest about with this book was it was designed to sell like everything about this book i want to make money off this book i want to sell a lot of copies and i wanted to launch really launch my speaking career and all that kind of stuff because my first book was a was a pure weight loss book and we sold it to Random House Canada and it did well in Canada, but we couldn't sell it in the United States. And the, the reason being that it was too science based and it wasn't a diet book. It was a weight loss book. If I decided that I was going to write a book about how keto cures cancer or some shit and You're sold rich. my soul, I could have sold that book. But so I thought, OK, well, well, I can write a motivational book and still be science based. You can write a science based motivational book as long as you've got that that powerful hook. So everything from the uh, the, the title of the book to the cover to the uh, the subject matter and the way I approached it, all that kind of stuff was done in a way to saying, OK, how can how can we move as many copies as we can? We were a couple of weeks out from starting to pitch this book to publishing houses, and we still didn't have a title. And uh, my agent said, well, just send me a list of titles that you think could work, and, and I'll pick one. And I came up with 10, and this one was like number seven or eight down the list. I wasn't even really excited about it. And I wasn't thinking, if I put a swear word in the title, people are going to buy the book. <laughs> I just I just threw it out there. It just sort of came to me. And he said back, it's the holy shit moment. And I was like, really? I didn't I didn't really like that one. And he goes, no, trust me. This is, we can change it later, but publishers <laughs> are going to like it. So, uh, so we're going to pitch it as the holy shit moment. And then so we start pitching and within 24 hours, he says, yeah, you need to start planning to come to New York next week because we got <laughs> huge interest in this. And a few days later, I'm in New York meeting with every major publishing house, which was a surreal experience. And everyone is talking about how much they love the title. And I was like, well, you know, like I'm not married to it. We can change it if you want. And they're like, no, no, this is good. And since then, everyone has said this is a great title for a book. And I'm thought. Well, fuck, if everybody likes it and it's going to help sell books, then holy shit moment it is. (laughs) Well, the the thing, like, and I I love having fun with, like, uh, subtle art, but I'll actually say this, and I've said this before, that book is actually really, really important and it's very valuable. And again, I call it the twilight of of the self-help, self-development industry. It's a gateway book. People are going to read this and and anyone who's not in this, into the shit at all, will read it and go, oh, this is cool. This is so fucking awesome and authentic. And again, I think it's bullshit. I think the guy's a fraud. <laughs> but what it's going to do is then it's going to get people to, into reading other really good see, literature, see, like your book and Atomic Habits and a bunch of other stuff. And maybe it starts them on the road to something good. James is looking the other way. It's like, let's get them in <laughs> thinking it's going to be this fucking quick fix. Then I'm hitting with science. <laughs> but that's just... <laughs> it's like, and that's, it's a but they already bought it. it. They already bought it. 
Yeah, I, I make them make a promise right in the introduction that uh, that, you know, being coming from a weight loss background, I am very familiar with the desire for quick and easy and the, the, the whole quick fix mentality. And I, I, I'm clear saying that you have to make a promise to yourself. I, I use the karate kid as the analogy of, you know, having uh, having a, a wife. She just got her third degree black belt. Uh, both my kids have black belts. My daughter's internationally competitive in karate. You don't become a master of karate through three fucking weeks of waxing cars <laughs> and painting fences. And uh, you became a master of karate because it's your lifelong passion and you're inspired to do years of work it took her you know she won when she was 15 years old she won the uh, gold medal at the usa open in las vegas that was 10 years of effort of sometimes training as many as 20 hours a week to get there and so i i make the reader make a promise to themselves that that if you have lofty goals i mean come on you know deep down that's going to take a metric shit ton of work you're going to have a lot of effort ahead of you hours, days, months, years of effort to achieve that goal. That's not going to change. So admit to yourself that that's what it's going to take. What can change in a flash, in a holy shit moment, is how you feel about that work, where it goes from what was once felt like drudgery now feels like your destiny. It is something that you must achieve and you're passionately inspired to pursue it with, with vigor, determined and unstoppable. It's funny you say that because that promise, like I read, fuck, I think it was Pat Davidson's mass. Anyways, it's the same sort of thing. He's You're reading the intro and he's like, if you're one of those people that skips past here and just goes right to the, the end and tries to look at the workout programs without looking at any of the science shit, he's like, you're not someone I want to hang around with and I hate you. I hate the type of person, <laughs> I hate the type of person you are. We would not be friends. And I read that I'm, and that was the dopamine. I'm like, fuck this guy. I'm going to read this book. <laughs> but it, it worked and it it stuck it sticks to me to this day because when you kind of talk to to people like that then it's not just a book you know what i mean it's almost a challenge so it, i like that a lot and it worked for me and i'm very like i'm psychotic <laughs> but it worked all i'll say about the karate kid is it probably inspired a lot of oh shit moments for kids to start doing karate that turned into yeah. long karate careers but yeah um, yeah and then and then they realized why am I not painting fences and whacking, waxing cars? This is really hard. But hopefully they enjoyed the process and a lot of them stuck with it. <laughs> I want to go to the next question. What was your first name? What was the first name that you liked? What was the – can you even say that? Um, so I had come up with – we had originally thought that maybe we would make this a more serious book without like swearing and poop jokes and stuff like that. And I was going to call it The Trigger Effect. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, st- and I can't even remember, I was talking about, uh, I came up with carpe fucking diem and, or seize the day and kick its ass and stuff like that. And, uh, but no, it was, it was funny that, that my agent said the, the most accurate title out of all of these is. The holy shit moment. I mean, it, it's catchy, but that is what the book is about, literally about having a holy shit moment. So when I started writing it, uh, I wrote I wrote the title into it and I referred to it as ha- having a holy shit moment a few times. And uh, and yeah, so it it kind of grew on me. And and the more that people said that they loved the title, I was like, yeah, OK, I guess I'm all right with it. Fuck the trigger one. <laughs> <laughs> OK. <laughs> 
So in addition to like your political commentary and, and being a writer, you also write for your body for wife.com, which we plugged. Um, just talking about quackery and pseudoscience, which we've kind of established you fucking hate. What, <laughs> just like right now, what are some crazy like bullshit things that people still get sold on? Cause this is like, I love this shit. Um, well, it, we still see a denial of caloric balance to this day. And, uh, and keto is at the heart of it right now. There's a lot of people that seem to think that, that keto violates the physical laws of the universe. And they don't understand that, that because they cut out an entire food group that for, you know, could be problematic for them with pastries and donuts and bread and pizza, that because they cut that out and they're now eating butter and bacon and whatnot, that, that they didn't realize that they created a de, de facto caloric restriction and therefore ended up losing a lot of weight. And uh, there's also the initial water loss that happens uh, right out of the gate that uh, that can be very motivating for them. So, yeah, that's the big one. I'm still it seems to be not quite as bad as it used to be. But and, and like even Gary Tobbs has been brought to task enough that he seems to be getting at least a little bit wishy-washy on his calories don't count garbage but uh, but it's still there there's a lot of people that think that if you cut carbs you can eat whatever as much as you want well the clean eaters of the bodybuilding community sort of the traditional belief still pervades as well where they think you know oh, as long as you're eating you know brown rice is fine you know, but an equivalent amount of calories in like apple pie is going to make you fat. Like those sort of myths still last. And there are people who mm -hmm. think, oh, calories do matter. But when it comes down to getting that last little bit of body fat off, no, 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 it's got to be clean food. So we, that sort of stuff sticks around. Something I've realized more than ever is a lot of the fitness professionals in our industry feel complacent in that most of these myths have been busted. But a, a good example I talked about recently is Maybe in our community. You know how like most women really do understand that lifting weights is not going to make them bulky. And it's like, it's, yeah. it's steroid use and like images of female bodybuilders that kind of created this in the first place. But nine out of 10 women that sit with me their first time to come and train with me do say some version of quote, I don't want to get bulky. They still but, say it, which means yeah. that myth is still sitting but there. That's the circle jerk of the fitness community is that we all think the myths have been debunked within <clears throat> each other. We all fucking like yeah. fitness and read the shit, but we are a very small portion of the population, like 0. 0.000. The people who are paying for shit have no fucking clue. Like they don't watch yeah. these people. Or no, no, they do watch the people. So do you just tell them is your, Andrew, is your response say, fine, don't do steroids. <laughs> that's your my, answer. I actually talk about how my response is actually this because People get in and, and talk about, oh, you know, you don't have enough testosterone to build muscle. Actually, that's kind of bullshit too. I mean, they don't have as much test, but women can build muscle fine relative to their frame and their size. But here's what I tell them. Look at all of the men who you know in a gym or just in your life who are going really, really hard and trying desperately to get bulky, who are not resembling to bulky, who look like they've never lifted a weight in their life. <laughs> if those guys are having that much you know, trouble doing it. There, dude. I'm starting to feel... 
attacked. He's like, he's, like, he's like, fuck you, James. This is your holy shit moment, man. Oh, what, what, what is that meme about, like, we're not talking about you, but if that shoe fits, lace that bitch up. <laughs> um, but the point being, and of course, every time I say that, a woman goes, like, oh, yeah, that fuck, that makes tons of sense, right? So it's, it's cueing into the emotion of it versus, like, just technical facts. Because they yeah, don't, they don't no. give a shit about the technical facts. Emotion's either. important. Yeah. Yeah. But that that plays right into what we've been talking about, though, is that you can... And there's been a few <laughs> things on this recently on Facebook, which I hate watching, but that whole idea of language and communication, like, people don't want to hear that calories are equated and you're going to lose water if you're on keto, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> they don't give a shit. They, you just need to tell them in a way where they understand what you're trying to say because they don't understand our talk. No. Nor should they. Like, they, they're not interested like we are. We're like psychos when it comes to information and evidence. Yeah, like, it, that makes no sense. It's not their profession. It's, no. not, it's not what they do for a living. It's not their primary hobby. And, I mean, if if you do it right, it may become a big hobby for them. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think one of the greatest things you can do is inspire people to get excited about this type of information where they begin to geek out over it a bit. Speaking of geeking out and talking about fighting bullshit... Uh, one of the articles that was really fun that you wrote uh, a little while back, it discusses, quote, every dumb fuck food documentary on Netflix, end quote, <laughs> which is probably a now a current source of a lot of this, this bullshit. So uh, let's see. I actually once ended up in quite a bit of shit at my old workplace arguing over some coworkers telling some new trainers that sugar is the devil and their evidence was like some YouTube video. And of course, I didn't get along with these people in the first place. Yeah. They're deeply mired in, oh God, some multi-level marketing, let's just say. So there's a lot of conflict over that. And so I countered back by saying to them, they were, they were talking about GMOs and how GMOs are bad. And their evidence was that GMOs are banned in half the countries of the world. So my response was this. This is what got me in a lot of shit homosexuality is illegal in half the countries of the world. That doesn't make it wrong. Uh, yeah, no, say, that's a good comeback for sure. That was a two-day suspension at an HR meeting for saying that. Are you that. serious? I'm serious. Uh, a third coworker lied about the context of it, and the, the attempt was to actually get me fired and removed from the situation so they could continue to perpetuate their multi-level marketing behavior. Yeah, <laughs> so. there's a lot of, it's shocking how in the, and I, of course, not talking about you guys, but in the personal training industry, there's a lot of nutritional pseudoscience that perpetuates it, that, uh, you know, these guys may be good trainers. They may know the science of, um, uh, of exercise science and kinesiology and, and periodization and all that kind of stuff. But somehow when it comes to the nutritional side, they just lose their freaking minds and believe every bullshit myth that there is, which is why I am generally, you know, I think there's exceptions to it, but um, I'm, I'm generally skeptical of letting people use personal trainers for nutritional advice. Sorry about the dog, guys. Uh uh, Dean's dog, Petty, just had a complete meltdown. So uh, <laughs> it looks what James was like. Well, I guess the, the question before I got sidetracked was, why are these documentaries so fucking appealing and insidious? Well, I, I it's a combination of things. There was a uh, an article, I think it was James Hamlin in The Atlantic, and he was interviewing um, Dr. David Katz, who 
has become quite problematic in recent years. And yet, when it came to nutritional science, was still very insightful in a lot of ways. So it, it, it's funny. The guy's a, the guy's a, a bit of uh, – there's quite a bit of – anyway, I won't get into that. Yeah. But <laughs> the thing that he talked about is that when it comes to diet, people are looking for either a scapegoat or a silver bullet or both. So with, uh, you know, using keto as an example, we've got the scapegoat is carbs. Carbs are fucking evil. They're going to kill you. You don't need carbs. Never eat another carb for the rest of your life. There's your scapegoat. Your silver bullet, butter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> eat lots of butter. That That's so that's one one example. And people love that type of stuff. They want they want something to blame and then they want something that's going to save them. And they develop cult like mentalities out of being in this new in group because it used to be uh, religion was the big thing that bound us together. Now we're slowly becoming a little bit more of a, a post spiritual society. There's still plenty of, you know, religious dumb fuckery going on in the world, but other people that have left that and, and, and no longer have that, that in group that they can be with from a from an otherworldly spiritual sense, they find it via food. And uh, I, I wrote a, a piece you may have read: "Anti-sugar cultists are totally fucking batshit." Was the name <laughs> of the article. And uh, and I interviewed uh, Alan Levinovitz, who's a, um, a professor of uh, religious studies at I think it's James Madison University. He wrote a book called "The Gluten Lie." So he used his PhD in religious studies to analyze the way that we look at food. And uh, and so I interviewed him for this article. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, when you look at religion from millennia ago, one of the aspects of religion was food. You know, they used food as a tool, something that they do several times a day. We eat several times a day to bind the group to the religion of the state. Uh, Judaism being an example with having to be kosher, Islam has their food rules, other religions have their food rules. And if you if you ate that food, you were unclean, you were an unbeliever, you're a the pagan or an outcast or whatever. And if you did follow these rules, it was part of the ritual of belonging that kept, you know, it was all about power. And and so people that are on the stand to make a lot of money off of keto, they make money off of creating a cult-like mentality around it. Same goes with veganism, big fucking cult there. I mean, <laughs> not saying that, that keto's all, all people who, who do the vegan approach are cult members, but it has a tendency to create a very cult-like following. And so you've got your vegan movies, you've got your keto movies, and these people, uh, again, not all of them, I'm not doing broad brush, but there are segments of them that go off the freaking deep end. I was going to say, uh, for, for the fitness pros who are listening to this one, uh, I, hopefully you'll look at, because a client of yours is going to come to you and say, hey, I want to try this diet. And keto, it happened with one of my clients who's got a great relationship with her. She's really super. She's smart. But she just had this impulse, and she gets these impulses to try quick fixes. So she wanted to try keto. So my, my response wasn't, nor should yours be, hey, keto's fucking stupid. Your response should be, okay. <laughs> I am glad you're going to research these sort of things. I have some concerns about keto. However, let's try it. I'm going to be part of this with you. We'll guide you through it and we'll see if it works for you. 
So she started it. Of course, first thing I told her is like, you still have to count your calories. She doesn't. She's wondering why nothing's working. It turns out she's adding it up and she's about, oh fuck, like 800 calories over our goal. So then she adds me to a couple of these keto groups. You want to see like church in, in session? Uh, <laughs> holy shit. So the, the, you need to get into these things no. just, to, just to actually experience the in, level of indoctrination that goes on. Praise bacon. Praise Absolutely. <laughs> there, there is some really insane shit that goes on here. So of course, thankfully, after about a month, she realizes this is total bullshit and she quits it and she goes back to more evidence-based approaches, things, which... Here's the key. Keep their trust through the process. Be a part of it. Because if you don't, A, you're belittling them or the efforts they're making, which will yeah. damage your relationship. And two, keeping that trust allows you to be part of the process and then steer them into a better direction. When they realize, which they usually do, hey, wait a second, this stuff's fucking insane. Then you sell them, yeah. then you sell them key DOS. <laughs> what? Well, the, the MLM. <laughs> then you give them your MLM product. The, the juice cl cleanse and you make money off them and okay. get them to sell your stuff. That's how it all starts. You get the trust. <laughs> like you basically talked about the beginning of like someone who gains people's trust, then they hit them with the product afterwards after they figured it yeah, out. If, if you, I'm a little dubious on, Sorry, on personal I trainers. I shouldn't get involved. selling anything in terms of supplements. Oh, yeah. I'm really, really other than training. Exactly. I really think that that's, well, that's how you know, ethically dubious. That's so. how you know trainers are good though. If you sell them with a super unsexy answer, yeah. Like if you tell them something crazy right off the bat, you know they're going to sell you something. Like that should be like the flag goes off. So uh, I was going to shift this because so anyone who's listening to this, what often happens is they if they're our core audience, they're finding someone for the first time and then they go off and they follow their social media and they, they listen to them. And a lot of people have given me a lot of feedback about how much they love a lot of our guests. So you go find James's work, his bodyforwife.com, his Facebook. Be prepared for some polarizing ideological shit. Okay? <laughs> so, which I actually really enjoy. But there's something that you actually do rant on fairly frequently. I don't think anyone will ever disagree on. And no. that's bad Costco etiquette. So <laughs> where does the just the sheer bombast towards Costco bullshit come from? Uh, so it, it, I wrote this article titled... Um, dear Costco shoppers, this is why we hate you. And it's not the store. It's not the staff. It's the fucking people that shop there. And so I made a post. I was in Costco because uh, it's a great place to buy leg of lamb. It's uh, You get really good leg of lamb there that's cheap. So it's cheap, cheap meat <laughs> is why I go. And, and it's just it's a fucking right down to the parking lot. The place is a hellscape. And... And I live 10 minutes away from apparently one of the busiest ones in North America. Which Same. one, which one do you live by in yeah. Calgary? Is the one uh, on the end? Beacon Hill, so yeah, north oh, end fuck. of the city. It's fucked. And uh, apparently it's just insane. It is. And, well, it is insane. I mean, I can tell you it's the one I go to. And <laughs> and people say, oh, the one in Okotoks is, is way better. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's an hour's drive away from me. So I'm just going to suffer through the one nearby. But I, I made a post on Facebook saying that, you know, this is a text that uh, I sent to my wife from Costco. And the text was, this world can only be cleansed by fire. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I posted that to my Facebook page. And, and I got a lot of uh, very highly interactive and very entertaining followers on that page. And 
they started going on tirades about everything they hate about Costco customers. And I knew about half of them, but there were other ones like, yeah, fuck that guy. Ooh, yeah, fuck that guy. And so I read their comments and it just wrote an article that in it, it took me 40 minutes to write the article, basically stealing ideas from the comments field. Uh, and and it just blew up like it, it, it's funny that that since I've moved away from freelancing more into my blog and I run ads on my blog is I can spend three days working on a very science based article that not many people read. And it makes me 50 bucks. Then I write something like that that takes 40 uh uh, that takes 40 minutes, 45 minutes. I made $2,000 US off that one article and blew up so Holy big. shit. Well, that's actually a really good lesson out of this stuff, and it ties into what you are talking about earlier and and the the pragmatism. And, and that's something that I, I've always... You're actually really good for this, and I think people in the industry understand you. You're a pragmatist. You will do what gets more of an audience, and more of an audience allows you to slip in the evidence-based stuff that really is the meat and potatoes of your message. And, and you do it by luring them in with some of these other things. And if someone were to, to accuse it of being a little clickbaity, well, I think the issue with clickbait is, is what is the end agenda? Is the end agenda something ethical or something unethical? And the bottom line is it's it's ethical, it's good information. So yeah. Guilty as charged. And I, I mean, I've admitted that for years that, that, you know, people say, well, you know, why do you go on rants about, it works the the weight loss rap like why don't you just ignore that crap and the the thing is that people love the rants that because when you're the thing is if you something like wrapping saran wrap saran wrap around your stomach super overpriced saran wrap mlm saran wrap around your waist and thinking it's some kind of miracle weight loss tummy toning cure the jokes write themselves like that's funny shit to, to go on a tirade about yeah. And uh, and people love and not only that, but people are angry about it because they have so many Facebook friends that are trying to get them, suck them into it, that that they love the tirade on something that is already pissing them off and they will click like mad on that stuff. So, you know, I make money from the post, but I also get new followers that start reading my my evidence. They're more likely to buy my science based weight loss book and read my other articles about that are against fat shaming and, and uh, talking about healthy, sustainable ways to lose weight and and encouraging of exercise and that kind of stuff that you know it allows me to reach a broader scope of people and uh and it also you know makes me some money for my website but while i'm at it i was it. gonna say though you're just marketing like, there's two types of people you're marketing to or not marketing to the people who buy mlm products and get sucked in and then there's everyone else like that's a pretty wide group of people and they all hate all that stuff like yeah. those people burn through social capital like the amount of people that that stuff has touched, like it's easy. Like you said, it writes itself. You just have to write something popular in terms of that shit. There's so many people that have been burned. And we have so or many, even like proposition for coffee. We have so many fitness professionals who are hell bent on writing very technical, very science based stuff that actually doesn't appeal to emotion or doesn't actually like yeah. grab people with the shit they're interested in. And I think that's very well intentioned. But I, I, if there's a takeaway from this entire episode is you can want to give people meet people where they're at the stuff that they're interested in. And if you do a really, really good job of presenting this, the facts and the information you want and getting it to, to people, because if you have got a blog where very few people are reading, but you're sticking to your ethical guns, we well, are not having any sort of an impact at all. 
Conversely, don't go completely off the deep end and sell out to every just yeah. fucking bullshit. Just the, the Costco people. But what, sorry, <laughs> this is totally. This is totally. I wanted. To, I, this, I really was excited about this question. What was like the biggest one? Sorry, I know we're like totally going back, but like, what no, was the biggest Costco there. bullshit? Because I, I know what mine is, but um, I'm trying to remember. I, I, it's been a bit since I read the article, but I think it was the uh, <laughs> the people that abandoned their cart sideways in the middle of the aisle. And, uh, that, that's a bad one that they just, they, they totally block the, uh, the cart and then walk away from it. Well, my, some, some of my pet peeves, everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, fuck. First of all, anyone who like a group of more than two who walk like shoulder to shoulder blocking lanes, like fuck you families, there's a special place in hell for those kind of people. That's my number two. Bringing your fucking family to Costco, all like seven children and just leaving carts and standing in front of the food sample places. That shit drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. The worst uh, thing I've ever seen in a Costco, this, and I lost my shit because if... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm tilt about uh, this, like, the big five personality thing. It sort of frames an aspect of my personality. I'm a highly disagreeable person. I don't think that comes as a shock to anyone who knows me. So Seconded. I see, I, I <laughs> I see this woman who pulls out a bag of what I think was, like, frozen pineapple or mango. And I'm watching her, and she opens the bag. No. And then she takes her little greasy paw and sticks it in the bag and grabs a piece of fruit and pops it in her mouth. So I'm like, okay. And she seals up the bag, and she proceeds to put the bag back in and grab a Mother different bag. Fuck. So I what? called her out. I actually started screaming at her. Well, not screaming, but I you like screamed called. at an old lady? She was probably in her, like, 40s. But uh, anyway, so I yelled at her. I'm like, I hope you're not going to fucking put that back there. Take that and you buy that right the fuck now. So she like, looked all shocked. People are looking at her. She grabs the bag and puts in her cart and like boogies on. But I couldn't fucking believe this shit, right? And that's that's theft and that's disgusting. So that was the worst thing I've seen. Okay, let's get this on air. What's like the, (laughs) the, the cart rules? Like, should it be normal driving rules? Like right side goes like in the country you're in? Like that's, that's like my biggest thing for parking lots. For walking yeah. on the sidewalk, but like Costco, especially because you're basically driving fucking vehicles with their cars being so. So it, it is normal North American street rules. Like that's so. Anyone listening, yeah. if you don't do that, fuck and, you. You know, if you're at a Costco in England, go on the other yeah. side. I guess <laughs> that would be normal, right? And it's just like oh, that. That goes in with the doors too. Like, should we go into the right side of the door for entering and leave on? Big pet peeve of mine. You get people coming out the wrong fucking door, like coming out on the right side. Like, it's just more general because that's the rules oh, of the road. And it should apply. Not having your membership card ready oh. when you're going in and you're blocking it. You're blocking yeah. the entrance with your cart fishing through pockets and purses and whatnot trying to find. Yeah, you didn't need your fucking membership card the last hundred yeah. times you came in, did you, dumbass? Get the thing ready in advance. So like, I hope we yep. lose listeners because of this. Because if you're fucking doing these things, like you shouldn't, like you should fuck off. The, uh, the other bad one, and I've actually yelled at people for this crap too, because again, I just, certain things I see in public, and I'm actually a nasty son of a bitch, uh, if they go and leave their cart next to the vehicle, and they don't return it to a corral, which is like, oh. not even that far away, I'll actually look at them and go, are you too lazy to put your cart back? <laughs> and then they look at me, <laughs> one lady was re- really kind of like taken aback, oh, you're nosy. You mind your own business. And uh, I was like, you're lazy. <laughs> so she put the cart back and gave me this dirty look. 
But I, <laughs> well, if people if people want to read the full list, I think it was pretty exhaustive. I think I got them all. If they just Google my name, James Fell plus Costco, it's going to be the first one. They'll find it. Beautiful. So yeah. let's go back to where we started, and we always ask everybody for a book recommendation. Something that it's not your book. We've already recommended it's not the my book. this book. So something that you know you found really valuable that you think the audience might enjoy benefit from. Okay, so uh, can I give two books? Absolutely. Okay, so uh, the two that I would say are most complementary to mine are Wired to Create by Scott Barry Kaufman. Uh, He has a PhD in psychology, and it is a... Uh, definitely a how-to book in terms of enhancing your creativity. And like I said earlier, that this is very much, having a holy shit moment is very much a creative endeavor. So love that one, Wired to Create. And uh, another good one is also by, uh, I think it's she's at New York University, uh, professor of psychology, Gabrielle Eddingen. And the book is called Rethinking Positive Thinking. And it has some pretty concrete steps in there in terms of finding out what it is that you want to do with your life and how to work your way past the obstacle. And when you find what the obstacle is uh, towards achieving your dreams and, and find out how you get around it, that can be a big, massive insight. It can be an epiphany. So those two books, I think, are, uh, are the most complementary to mine. Nice, nice, nice. I was just thinking how we um, we didn't even mention the fact that you're actually based in Calgary, so we actually no, it did come up with the Costco thing. But yeah, so we actually got a bunch of guests that we've had on who are Edmonton, or sorry, Alberta-based, Edmonton-based. We've had Dean Somerset on about three times now. Uh, Brian Cron is going to be on. Uh, we're actually his episode will be aired way before yours because we're holding mm-hmm. yours back, but we're actually going to record him soon. So uh, we've got a pretty good roster of people Marty. who are. Pretty close. What's that? Mar- Mar- yeah, we just put out, well, it'll be again a couple months ago, uh, Mega Marty McPhee, who's also now a bird-based yeah. guy. So I don't know if you know Marty. He's a oh, I've, fun Yeah, guy. we're Facebook friends, man. That guy's got an admirable physique for sure. <laughs> I was looking at your list of past guests, man. You guys have had some real rock stars on the show. I'm, I'm uh, honored the, to be included in such august company. We have all we hit all the A B C D E list. Like I don't know, you, you're probably like a B. When this book comes out, like you, you might be like an A if this book hits it. Like this might be our biggest one. In in a funny way, James actually may have greater reach like, than anyone else we've we ever should had. hold this podcast back till like because I know you're going to use this podcast to like sell the book. Maybe we'll hold it back till the book fucking blows up, then <laughs> release it because no one will. It's, everyone's going to find out about it. We're going to wait for the. And all like, we're recording this in mid uh, December. Chances are we'll release it about mid-January when yeah. you guys are listening. But you're hearing our voices. It's teleporting us forward through time. It's now January that you're hearing this. So that works fine. Uh, we've actually, you know, we're really proud of the the guest list we've had. Uh, I've probably met in person and have gotten to know really well or even can count as friends. Probably 80% of the people we've had on there, like people like Brett Contreras and Nick Tuminello, who are on recently, uh, they're just awesome guys, really, really smart Really good perspectives, really evidence-based. So really happy with uh, the the collection of awesome people that we've had the good fortune to be able to sit down for about an hour with and steal their time for free and pick their brains. <laughs> but also share you guys, this is why we do this, share you guys with the people who've been following us for a long time. And I think it's a really big win-win for everybody. And then if someone who happens to follow you 
sees this ridiculous graphic that we made of you and it's like, oh, James on a podcast, let's check it out. And they're listening to this now. Maybe they'll take a look and go, well, oh shit, these guys have some other great people on there. And maybe you're, again, you're going into a Dean Somerset podcast or a Dr. Mike Isertel or We've had Mark Fisher on, who's one of the most incredible human beings that you, you could ever spend time with. Oh, yeah, he's to. awesome. So, you know, cycle back that or a Kelly Coffee. She owns the record, I think, for the most F-bombs on our podcast yet to date. <laughs> you might have said shit a lot more. Like, I mean, this one, just because of the book, we might have. I don't, I don't think it approaches the just the unfiltered exuberance and bombast that is Kelly Coffee. I love Kelly. She's awesome. Kelly is an awesome human. And a good, Kelly's probably someone who has had a few of her own holy shit moments. And uh, <laughs> yeah. if you guys are interested in that or you know who Kelly is, you know, I, I'll tell you guys, go check that episode out because it's a really, really great one. It's one of her earlier episodes. And, and Kelly's an awesome friend. So I guess we have one more piece of business. Yeah, I guess like we kind of do this all the time, but um, we talked about your blog, bodyforwife.com. Where else can people find you if they're if they're looking to kind of consume some of the stuff you put out there? So most of the actions on Facebook, uh, which is slash body for wife. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of fun there and uh, and we swear lots and talk about poop and things like that. And uh, I'm, I'm less active, but I'm also on Twitter, which is at body for wife. So it's pretty much either search James Fell or search Body for Wife, which is a really good title. It's it's cool, and I think it uh, it grabs attention. I think you when you first saw it, you're like, "Hey, cool." So, I was like, "That's a great name." That's a great name. Yeah, like it's back it's when an Bo- inside <laughs> joke from back when Body for Life was really popular, like 17, 18 years ago. Because I had uh, I did decide to get in shape prior to proposing to my wife. 25 years ago, I was like, yeah, I'm going to propose. So yeah, what the hell? I'll get in shape first. And, uh, and which doesn't mean that, you know, she's like standing over me with a whip. (laughs) It didn't take very long before fitness became something I did for me, but it, it, uh, it was years later and I was working out with these guys, uh, on my lunch break and, and I was bigger than they were. And they they were like, uh, you know, what's your secret, James? We're all doing the body for life program. And I just jokingly said, I'm on the body for wife program. And they laughed. And and so here we are, you know, I was, I went back and used my work computer that afternoon to buy the URL and just parked it for a while until I decided to become a writer. Now you're writing about Costco making thousands. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, James, it's been a real treat to have you out here. This was good. Uh, hang out. We'll chat a little off the air uh, to the, everyone who's listening. Again, thanks for checking this out. Uh, go check out James. And again, if you are someone who is finding us for the first time, um, if you like some of our other episodes, we're working really hard to create a very different experience than your typical fitness podcast. It's not the same old pedantic questions. It's meant to be fun and to bring out, excuse me, <coughs> sorry about that, a lot of life and character out of our guests. So, uh, just check out some more of our episodes. And if you really like it, stick around. We've got lots more on the way. We'll be bringing on James Clear in the not-too-distant future, who's another really cool author dropping a big book. So thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you, guys. Shut up and sit down.